0: This is Under the Radar, and I'm Philip Martin filling in for Calais Crosley. And now for the part of the show we call Lawn Yap. That's Creole, by the way, for something extra. When Massachusetts legalized marijuana back in 2016, It included a mandate into the law enforcing the industry to offer opportunities to communities disproportionately affected by the war on drugs and consistent over-policing for cannabis. Now, in doing this, Massachusetts became the first state to write social equity for the marijuana industry into law. The state also created the Cannabis Control Commission, or the CCC, to help those who were eligible to open a dispensary. There were two programs new dispensary owners could go through. One, the Economic Empowerment Program and the Social Equity Program. But over the years since these programs were introduced, it has proven difficult to be approved by the CCC for a distribution license. More recently, state officials announced the creation of the Cannabis Social Equity Advisory Board. That's a committee tasked with deciding how the state will disperse money to cannabis and entrepreneurs. But has the industry actually become more equitable? And how? how have these moves toward a more inclusive cannabis industry worked or failed we're going to ask that question to our guests joining me right here in studio tito jackson former boston city Councilor and ceo of apex that's the first full service cannabis retailer in boston and we're also joined remotely by drew ledbetter the ceo of flower express a recreational cannabis delivery company and the owner and CEO of Zeb Boutique, a cannabis retail dispensary. Tito, Drew, welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. i got to tell you, it feels pretty amazing to talk about this in, in, in the most normal of, uh, of terms, something that before 2016 was so, so anathema uh, to certainly uh, U.S. lawmakers and to much of the public. Um, let's start with uh, with you, Tito. The notion of inclusiveness and where we are now now the normalization of cannabis. How does it feel for you, first of all, to be uh, someone in- engaged in this industry?
2: It is amazing. Um... There are a, a million more reasons why getting a license and actually opening your door shouldn't happen <laughs> that actually happens, and Drew Drew knows what I'm talking about. And so the fact that we are uh, the first seven-story, full-service cannabis dispensary edible factory, and we also purchased a liquor license. So we actually have a roof, deck, bar, and lounge all in the same space. So that that actually has not happened in any other part of the country. And then we also the first black-owned uh, dispensary downtown. And, and so Apex Noir brought all of those things together. We currently have 15 uh, employees, um, and 80% of them are BIPOC. And we actually um, w- worked on uh, getting people who – had a Corey, so if, if you had made a mistake, you can still work for us. So about twenty percent of our employees um, are uh, folks who have quarries. and so a, a, a criminal record, a criminal record, yes. And so what this is about for me is really an extension of what I did on the city council, providing people with decent jobs, uh, giving people uh, opportunities around housing, and giving people to uh, the opportunity to lift them up. And overarching this, what Drew and I are trying to do is build wealth, um, and make sure that that eight dollar uh, uh, net, uh, median net worth uh, that the folks over at the Boston Fed, the people who print the money, um, those, those folks actually uh, told us about that we're actually able to increase that um, and really cross uh, that chasm and a divide.
0: Now, Drew, uh, Tito said you know exactly what uh, he's talking about. What, uh, talk about your own experience and why you um, uh, agree uh, or disagree with Tito.
1: I absolutely agree. We have a lot of these conversations. We might've had one of these last night. Um, (laughs) Essentially, this process is, um, it sets a lot of people up for failure. Um, You have to have some site control and that is hard in itself. And you have to have site control while you're going through licensing. And it's really hard for most people to be able to pay their own rent, Never mind somebody else's rent on a vacant property while they endure a year or more process of licensing So a lot of people that look like me don't have the opportunity to enter this industry because uh, the barriers are set up from the jump.
0: When you talk about the process, jumping through hoops, I I don't think it's lost on anyone listening how ironic a lot of this is. Given how people were penalized, particularly people of color, uh, for possession of cannabis um, prior to 2016, uh, you seem to suggest that there's still some type of punitiveness Uh, attached even to uh, this industry uh, for people of color in the aftermath of its legalization. Can you elaborate on on that, Drew?
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that the law has written in is that if you have a violent offense, you're not suitable for licensure. And most people in my community that were distributing or possessing marijuana typically needed to protect themselves from the community and, and carried weapons. So if you have a cannabis offense, you typically have a gun offense, which is considered a violent charge. And now you are ineligible to participate in this industry to begin with. So the industry that's competing with the legacy, which is what we call the former black market, is uh, the underground, that we're, we're competing with legacy um, because we're not allowing legacy to enter the legal industry. And it's it's truly ironic that people that were distributing before are unable to actually enter the legal market, and we did not create a pathway for the legacy market to enter into the legal industry. We just handed it over to people that had no knowledge of the plant.
0: And perhaps even more ironic is that in parts of the country, some of the very people who opposed cannabis legislation are running uh, dispensaries. Uh, That's a situation in Colorado we're seeing. Uh, Tito, comment on that and also about the... um, if you will, the resistance within um, uh, some communities still, uh, including some black communities, uh, to uh, to opening cannabis uh, uh, dispensaries.
2: I believe that any person who has a marijuana offense, currently or in the past, um, that should be wiped from wiped from their record. Because there are companies who are operating in the state of Massachusetts who are making hundreds of millions of dollars, and I guarantee you none of the people currently locked up sold anywhere near as much as some of the companies who Drew and I uh, speak to about uh, potentially purchasing product or or the like, and and the kind of second part of your your question relative to um, the acceptance, so it's really interesting. So a couple of years ago, I, I got invited um, by an organization of seniors to come speak to them we had a conversation with, with elders, and I I had I said, hey, can you raise your hand if you agree with this? And only about 60% of people raised their hand. This is like in 19, 2019, so three years after. And so we had a real good conversation about the fact that that, that ship had sailed. So it was, it was solidly in law, they were open, and the question I, I posed to them is, uh, one, how many of you, as as Drew just noted, had a um a, a family member who was involved in a criminal justice system based on drugs or, or something like that? And almost all of them raised their hands. So I said, Well, hey, who do you want the real question is who do you want to own these? Do you want someone from Colorado? Do you Washington State? Um, or or Oregon, or do you want someone from the neighborhood who's going to actually hire folks in the community, who's going to purchase from folks in the community? When I did my build-out, I used a, a, a black builder to do to do my build-out. Um, the people clean my building. And so there's
0: all of these other components that we kind of think of um, in this space. That was my next question. You just answered it. Uh, and b- again, part of the thrust uh, Tito drew is uh, towards social equity. uh, And it had to be built into the program. Now, listen to Ava Concepcion uh, speak about a new law for the industry that has to do with social equity. She's, by the way, one of the five commissioners on the Cannabis Control Commission who helped the the state create the social equity program.
1: We have this new law that has been enacted. um, It's chapter 180. And within that law is increased oversight. So now the commission has oversight over those municipalities to make sure that equity is being combed in to the process.
0: Okay, so equity combed into the process. Uh, uh, Two percent control at this point. Is equity being homed into the process, Tito? Um, so, so understand there
2: are models and this is the reason why I think this is important. And I I really look forward to the Cannabis Control Commission, um, really walking in their power here. They now have the right to say to cities and towns, Hey, we can actually kick in a little bit more tax money if you're doing the right thing, or we can withhold some. Um, so I think the, 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 uh, commission has an opportunity here. So there are cities like Boston, right? That, uh, Fifty-two licenses—that's the floor. That has to at least be fifty-two. What they said is twenty-six will go to equity. Now that is a good—that's a good thing. In Cambridge, they've actually withheld uh, li- licensure for other uh, for businesses other than equity. Uh, but there are a lot of places where equity does not play in at all. And so, what? Look, a couple pieces that cities and towns could could do. One, look at equity as one of the many things that you're actually looking at. We're not saying it's the only thing, but look at it as a factor um, in in the mix. That's an important um, component. Um, Also, um, it is really important that um, that individuals have diverse teams, because I'm sure Drew's been in the same situation uh, as I've been in. I've been in a situation um, that I I felt very lonely in some of the meetings that I've been in, because I'm the only person uh, of color. And... Um, It is sad in many regards due to the fact that when we look at the individuals who've been locked up uh, in the state of Massachusetts, and this is how I got in the industry, um, ACLU came up with a study and they looked at uh, who was getting locked up in Massachusetts post-2008 when one ounce or less on your person became legal. 300% higher chance of being locked up if you're black. Distribution, 700 percent higher chance of being locked up in a state that is 7 percent black. And so we have to be thinking about equity, by the way, not only in Boston and Cambridge, but in smaller towns, gateway cities. Um, So so we're also not all uh, compacted and competing only with each other in uh, the major cities and towns. And I think that's another critical component.
0: Well, Drew, I guess the question then, uh, given the, the challenges still uh, that you're dealing with within this industry, is the institutionalization, if you will, of social social equity enough? Uh, does something else else has to happen on the community level, uh, outside of the uh, the dictates, if you will, of the cannabis control commission?
1: Absolutely. Um... Education has to happen. And I think a lot of uh, operators have take, taken it upon themselves to educate the community. I'm actually, I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. So I came to the United States in the 90s, early 90s, and I was a DARE program child. So my parents were programmed to think that cannabis and, and drugs are bad. And I, I even won a poster contest in the fifth grade, like take the world away from drugs, right? And, and now I had to Go back and try to educate my own mother, who's a pastor, and my own community of elders, and say this is a plant, and this plant heals people, and and this is how I entered the industry. And I think it's really important that we really destigmatize the plant and remove all the stigma that's associated with it. We look at it as medicine. Pfizer is investing; everybody's investing into this plant and research because it is medicine, and now they have the 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 ability to do this. So why is our community still looking at it as a bad thing? And it's really because of the story that the media has told. So I I work really, really hard on having conversations that are thoughtful and meaningful with my immigrant community and saying, hey, that D.A.R.E. program was a scam. This is a plant. It can help heal. Um, so I think one of the things that we need to do as a community, as a state, is really educate. And the same way we campaigned to the war on drugs and we campaign to make this a bad thing, we need to campaign to make it a good thing again.
2: Um, But the other component, uh, Philip and Drew, that we need to make sure that we're talking about is access to capital. So understand we can't go down the street to the bank and say, hey, you know what, Um, I'm opening a cannabis company. So one, we obviously know that there are disparities in in, um, access to capital regularly never mind for something that is federally illegal and so the other component here is how do we access capital um and we're and what we're talking about the typical store so we're not talking about a a cultivation facility or the like is a at least a million bucks right to open it and a lot of it is as drew noted you have to identify a building You have to find a landlord who doesn't have a loan that is FDIC insured, right? So that's oftentimes they don't have a loan on the building. So that's a subset of a subset of folks. And then you have to convince them to keep it off of the market while you go through permitting. Right. So there's a lot, a lot of machinations Um, that actually have a lot of challenges. Right. And um, and so they they want their rent on on a monthly basis. So you you have that identification. Then you have your lawyers. You have your consultants because this is a highly regulated industry. And so you're you're to the tune of one one million to one point five million to get the doors open. And as we noted, the median net worth of a black family in Boston is eight dollars. So one of the things that has come up um, is now there is a social equity fund at the state, uh, where about 15% of the aggregate uh, tax dollars will then be redistributed um, to uh, businesses. So that is going to be a really critical component. We know that that uh, organization has now been um, been put together, and we really look forward to the organization uh, pushing funds out and making sure that they don't forget people like Drew and I.
0: You know, one observation is that in many ways, we seem to be at the beginning of something that's so different. Uh, when you think about even psychedelics, now are being becoming more acceptable across the board. You have pharmaceuticals now focused on uh, how to make profit from things uh, heretofore were considered anathema uh, to uh, to, the, to the American people, to the general public. Um, I'm Philip Martin, folks, uh, filling in for Callie, Callie Crosley, our own. And you're listening to Under the Radar. My guests are Tito Jackson, joining me right here. He's a former Boston City Councilor and CEO of the new cannabis dispensary Apex. And Drew Ledbetter, the CEO of Flower Express, a recreational cannabis delivery company, and the owner and CEO of Zepp Boutique, a cannabis retail dispensary. We're talking about how the marijuana industry in Boston needs to change to become more equitable. Another question about equitable, however, is this, profit. You have a situation now where cannabis, the price uh, seems to be going down fairly significantly. And Drew, can you talk about that uh, challenge as yet another one, uh, especially for people of color who are just now entering the industry?
1: Yeah, price compression is real. (laughs) Um, We have a lot of people who have been growing cannabis like corn, right? And it's not great cannabis, but they're able to sell it at a very low price. Um, So what's happening is smaller companies are having a really hard time offloading their product because dispensaries make better margins on product that is cheaper and they can still sell it at a decent price. It also drives traffic. So I think that what is happening in the industry with the collapse of the price of flour here, it's due to um, saturation in the market. We had a lot of big out-of-state companies build these huge facilities and put out a lot of flour and with the licensing process has not allowed a lot of retail and distribution dispensaries to open up in time to actually absorb some of that so what's happening is people are failing and most of the people that are failing look like me sound like me um, there's a lot of companies and and dispensaries shutting their doors and it's causing a little bit of chaos I'm still in licensing. So I'm kind of watching it from the background. I know Tito definitely is uh, feeling the pressure of getting phone calls 10, 15 times an hour uh, for people trying to get products on, on their dispensary shelves. But one of the things that is very different about cannabis is that the product matters. So if you don't have good product, it's not going to move. So it's really important to think about quality product and focused on smaller local growers that are really putting their heart and soul into the plant. And and putting out good product. And I think that that's what's going to help uh, ease the pain of what's currently going on. But for equity operators, we're not even getting an opportunity to get in. Capital has dried up.
0: I will think that supply and demand is a big part of this uh, and uh, the old economic principles. Um, here's David uh, Torisi. He's the president of the Commonwealth Dispensary Association, which is one of the largest uh, cannabis trade associations in Massachusetts. And he's talking about the industry, the marijuana industry.
2: Well, I think that the narrative out there is that, that this is big marijuana versus social equity. What it's going to hurt is the small brick and mortar people, that, which is not big marijuana. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like to, to group it all together. And it's part of the existing narrative that really bothers me about this. The, you know, the, the, the constant playing off of each other is I hate it. Well, we hate it more, David. And so, the real piece is um, the the component here that also has to be layered in is taxes. So, understand because we are uh, selling something that technically is in the same category at the federal level as um, crack cocaine, as heroin, um, as LSD, uh, Schedule One. We actually. Um, are not allowed to write off anything uh, but our cost of goods sold. So one, the ironic part about that is we actually get to write off our weed. That's the only thing. that But the worst part is the flip side of that is in those people who are in, into business, you don't get to write off your sg so you don't get to write off your expenses. So what does that actually mean, bottom line? We have a 50% federal tax burden and about a 20% uh, state tax uh, burden. But when it comes down to it, this – Component about a windfall, the thought that people are just going to walk in and you have this windfall—that is not the case. And as, as Drew noted, uh, two years ago, four thousand five hundred dollar wholesale pounds, and typically companies double that price um, to sell it. The um, wholesale pound marketplace is about twelve or thirteen hundred dollars um, right now, and so there's some great changes that are are happening. And uh, as noted, and one of the things that we're dealing with in Boston. Is when when it comes to quote unquote saturation. Well, when you you you, you can't, and actually, this in a legacy market, most of the time, two people are not on the same block, or there's a, becomes a problem. They have to spread out. So there's um, some comments. I, I mean, some some thoughts that we need to be thinking about relative to what happens um, and what does equity look like in terms of its mechanisms when larger companies aren't actually even even competing with people and we are putting black and brown folks uh, pitting them against one another.
0: Well, this is interesting and Drew and Drew just want to uh want you to weigh in on this. Uh what Tito was just saying, uh of course seems at odds with um uh, David Torices' uh comments, uh, in which he seems to be suggesting that it's the survival of the fittest. Uh that old darwinian notion uh in context of uh, of of cannabis uh and uh, what are your thoughts about this
1: i think it's the survival of the most capitalized right he he doesn't see us he doesn't understand what we're going through and i rolled my eyes so hard listening to that because i was like really come on have several seats Um, you have no idea what it takes to launch a business without capital And having to go to your friends and family and raise money and have them believe in you. So that statement made no sense. And you're putting out trash weed. So we're not even going to talk about that. Um, But really what is happening in in our community, especially in the city of Boston, because they've prioritized equity, is that it's everybody, every time one of us finds a location, the next location is really close by. So we're not fighting with the big guys. We're fighting against each other. We're trying to really grasp and reach for the same audience. And in in, in a lot of these communities, I'm in Mattapan. I grew up in Mattapan. I literally, I'm opening a dispensary across from my former bus stop. And in that community, legacy rules. Nobody's going to dispensaries. That's not what's happening there. So it's not like I'm really fighting. Um, I'm fighting with legacy. And I'm also fighting if somebody opens up the street I'm fighting with them as well, and they all more than likely look like me, because in a community like Mattapan, where 70% of the homes are owned by brown, Black and brown people, the community is very engaged. You're not just going to walk into Mattapan and open a shop there. You really have to be part of the community, engage with the community, and involved. So in our community, it's just us really showing up and saying, okay, let's see which one of us is going to make it. And that's extremely unfair.
0: Uh, That's going to be all the time we have. I mean, Tito Jackson, I just want to reintroduce you, my friend, a former Boston City Councilor and CEO of the new cannabis dispensary Apex. And that was Drew Ledbetter, CEO of Flower Express, a recreational cannabis delivery company and the owner and CEO of Zeb Boutique, a cannabis retail dispensary. Thank you both for joining me.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you. Shout out to Kelly.
0: Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar. I'm Philip Martin filling in for Callie Crosley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crosley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and our intern, Jenny Firm. Our engineer is Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo Peake. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Philip Martin. Thanks for listening.